0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news, topic stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of TAF Law, and joining me as our guest today is Corey Stern of Levy Konigsberg in New York. Corey is a lawyer and an advocate for the environment, particularly as it pertains to children's rights. He represents those who've been injured by lead poisoning, among other things, and is the lead counsel for all of those injured in the Flint, Michigan water crisis of 2014, which is what we'll be discussing with him here today. I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that Corey is a national leader in this field, and we're lucky to have him join us. Corey, welcome to At The Bar. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, it's our pleasure. This is a a big uh, and scary and depressing topic, but I think We'll be able to hit at least the highlights today. I think our audience, Corey, will remember most of the basics about what happened in Flint. But, you know, with so many crises coming our way these days, it would probably be good to refresh some recollections um, and discuss just what happened in Flint seven years ago. So it's my understanding that this all kind of started with a decision by the emergency manager of Flint to switch the source of Flint's water from the Great Lakes to the Flint River, Right.
1: Yeah, so there's a a statute in Michigan that gives the governor of the state permission to appoint an emergency manager for any city that is financially in trouble, and the city typically has an option to either go into bankruptcy or to utilize the services of an emergency manager. For a bunch of years before 2014, Flint was in that position, and an emergency manager had been appointed by Governor Snyder, and Flint was utilizing a contract with the Detroit Water and and Sewage Department for water from Lake Huron for decades. And they were paying about a million dollars a month for the water from that water source. And one of the first decisions that the emergency manager made was to switch from the DWSD, which was Lake Huron water to the same water source, but a different conglomerate called the KWA. It was being built, however, and so it wasn't ready to actually service Flint. So you have Flint essentially becoming a free agent, choosing another team, but that team isn't part of the league yet. When the old team, DWSD, found out that Flint was going to take its talents to a new team, they canceled the contract, but Flint was stuck for a period of time without a water source, or they were going to be stuck without a water source. They had the option to either stay with DWSD or utilize the Flint River. And they made the decision to switch to the Flint River temporarily while the KWA, the Karagandi Water Authority, was being
0: built and it wasn't going to be ready for two or three years. I see. And that was problematic because the Flint River is highly polluted from local industry, right? It's
1: problematic because beyond the pollution in the water, the water could have been used. The Flint River was a viable water source, okay, but it would have required significant treatment from professionals for all of the bad stuff that existed in the water because it was a surface water source, um, which means that the composition of the chemicals in the water changes often because of rains and storms and winds. And so it's not that it couldn't be used, just if it was going to be used, it had to be used right.
0: And it wasn't. Right. And that, that, as I understand it, started to become obvious almost from day one, right? That switch is completed in the end of April, I think, of 2014. In June, you have your first outbreak of Legionnaire's disease tied to the water source, right? Yeah,
1: but even before that, almost immediately, people noticed discoloration in their water, foul smell coming from their water. There were water main breaks beyond what would have normally been expected, which was the result of the water not being treated, running through pipes that you know, that were generally made out of lead. So the signs were there well before the Legionella outbreak in June of 2014. I'm okay. not sure that anybody knew how to read the signs, but there were signs very early on.
0: And then August 2014, the city issued a boil water advisory, which, I mean, that's if that's not a red flag, I don't know what it is. It's not just a red flag, but it's a bad
1: decision because when you have pipes made out of lead and you have water that is flowing through the pipes, that's picking up lead as it flows through the pipes. Boiling lead-infused water concentrates the lead in water, so it it, oh. it has the opposite effect of what was intended. They issued a boil water advisory with the hope of protecting people, and they were actually making it worse.
0: Wow. And they knew, as at least as early as, what, February 2014, that there was high levels of lead in the water?
1: So it was probably February of 2015 that you're referring to because that's okay. that's potentially what they would say. But the reality is, is that they knew they weren't treating the water mm-hmm. with corrosion control immediately. And any engineer that deals in water, any professional from the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality or any other state's quality control authority, would know you have a surface water source, you have no corrosion control, you're going to have a major problem because there's lead pipes. So,
0: okay,
1: you know, yeah, maybe it was February 2015 that there's documentation back and forth between various government officials that there's a problem. But the reality is, is they should have known before they ever flipped the switch, and they likely did know almost immediately.
0: Right. And to that point, as early as September 2014, you have studies from Virginia Tech reporting 40% of Flint homes have elevated lead levels. You have a pediatrician at Hurley Medical Center releasing a study showing increased lead levels in children, right? This is September, 2014. So just months after that switch.
1: You have a bunch of people banging on pans and chests and yelling, this is bad. Scientists, physicians, some people even within the government, you know, trying to wave their arms saying, hey, we got an issue. And nobody was really listening. I mean, it was more every time a report came out by somebody who was smart, the response was more damage control and spin than it was acknowledgement of problem and fix.
0: And, you know, one of the things that I found so, I don't know, maybe the right word is galling, is that just a few months into this, the Flint City Council voted to reconnect to the Detroit water system, right? And the emergency manager, You know this person who was imposed by then-Governor Rick Snyder vetoed that decision and kept them on the the contaminated Flint River water.
1: Yeah, so at all times when the emergency manager was in place, the city council legitimately had no authority. And so there were often times where the city council would take votes. I mean, in one instance, when the emergency manager made the decision to switch, he had the city council vote to support that decision, and they did. And years later, the state government oftentimes blamed the city council for the switch because they voted for it. But the reality is, is it was a hollow vote. And they could have voted to shoot the emergency manager. They could have voted to succeed from the state. There was nothing the city council could have done that had any power whatsoever, because once the emergency manager had been appointed, all of their
0: power was divested. Okay, so the buck really stopped with him.
1: It did. Yeah, I mean, well, to the extent the buck stops with him, there were plenty of people within the city who became aware or were aware that there was a problem with the water, and they were not as forthright about that as they could have been, and in in some instances even falsified test results that were taken to determine levels of lead. So when I say the city council was divested of its power, I don't mean to insinuate that the city doesn't have any culpability for the crisis, but their culpability isn't a result of the decision that was made as much as the city's culpability is based on their acts and inactions by individuals within the city.
0: Okay. You hinted at the employees of the city, what they knew, when they knew, and that they were engaging in a cover-up. And I want to come back to that maybe in the second segment a little later, but maybe this is a good point to just pause for a second and remind our audience about the health effects of of lead to the human body, particularly the children. Why is this stuff so bad? What does it do to us and our kids?
1: So for children, especially children who are six years old or younger, they're the most vulnerable. And it's because their brains aren't formed. And so when lead gets into the blood, it ultimately works its way into bone mass and muscle mass and, and tissue, including the brain. It causes in a child's brain that's not yet formed serious cognitive deficits, you know, inability to read paragraph three without forgetting paragraphs one and two, ADHD, almost on steroids, which comes with its own set of anger issues and frustration issues. And when a child who inherently knows that he's capable of doing something academically or intelligently is stymied by something in his brain that he can't control or, or really understands why it's happening, the repercussions that result from the cognitive deficits last a lifetime. Now, for adults and, and for older children, because their brains are formed, the science of how lead works its way into the brain and what it does once it's in the brain is quite different for an older person than than mm. one of the more vulnerable six and under, but it can have negative effects on organs and, and various internal organs within
0: adults as well. I stumbled across one article, actually, when I was researching this that attributed part of the downfall of the Roman Empire to mass lead poisoning. The average uh, Roman citizen two thousand years ago had lead levels four hundred times higher than than their Iron Age predecessors. Wow! Yeah, they they actually used it as a sweetener in their wine. Maybe not the best idea.
1: Well, we're probably all better off without the Roman Empire. So maybe some good has come out of this science.
0: So let's go to the the turning point here. This information is known. It's out there. People are complaining about the color of their water. There's these studies indicating that the lead levels are dangerously high in the water. What was the turning point? What happened?
1: I'm not sure there was a singular turning point. I think that, like any other significant change that needs to happen, it's kind of pressure upon pressure upon pressure upon pressure. And I would attribute the majority of the shift to... Citizens who were advocating for themselves, you know, throughout the city, parents of children who kept showing up at city council meetings and kept showing up at the governor's office with jugs of water that looked like urine, that, you know, that, and they just never stopped. They refused yeah. to stop. And it got to be so loud and reached the highest levels that it was impossible to ignore. And ultimately, a select committee was formed to evaluate the crisis and, and what had actually happened. The EPA, despite its desire to not be involved in Flint, had no choice but to step into Flint. And really, it was a parent advocate, Leanne Walters, who got in touch with an individual from the Environmental Protection Agency named Miguel del Toro. He was in Chicago. She was in Flint. She somehow got him on the phone and in his free time, because she convinced him in such a compelling way that people were being poisoned in Flint, she convinced him to come to Flint on his own dime, which he did. He did his own testing of her home and then some other homes, and he realized this is a significant problem. And he tried to blow the whistle and wrote a memo to the EPA, which was ignored. He was silenced. He was punished for for going outside of his job duties to spend time in Flint, but it was because of the advocacy of Miss Walters and, and others like her who just said, you know, I don't care if I'm poor, I don't care if I live in a community that's primarily black, I don't care if the governor is of a different party than I am, and I don't care if they're telling me that everything's okay, because my instincts are, and my smell test and my my taste test says, Something is terribly wrong, and she just refused to to stop until someone could confirm that for her.
0: But that took a long time, right? It was more than a, a year after lead was first detected that the governor declared a state of emergency.
1: It took a long time because I think the people in the poorest communities' voices sound the softest and the lowest to the people with the most power. And it's not that it took her a long time or that it took Miguel del Toro a long time or that it took any of the other concerned citizens a long time to say the things that needed to be said. It took a long time for the people in power to hear the things that were being said. And I think that if this had happened in, you know, West Bloomfield, Michigan or Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn or Ann Arbor, Michigan, places that may be more affluent than Flint the community leaders and the governmental leaders have more of a stake in those spaces because of campaign contributions and desires to get reelected and constituencies that look and sound and feel more like them, that their ears are always wider and the voices seem a lot louder. So the sad part is, is that it wasn't a product of it taking too long or very long for the people with voices to scream. It's just that their screams were kind of muted by the fact that their socioeconomic status didn't put them in a position where anybody in power actually heard them.
0: And on that piece of wisdom, we probably should take our first break. We'll be right back. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. Do you have a legal matter that you need resolved but want to avoid the expense of going to court? The litigation process can be stressful and costly, but there's another solution, mediation. The Chicago Bar Association Mediation Service enables you to choose a qualified attorney mediator to help resolve your business or legal dispute efficiently and for a reasonable fee. All participating attorneys have been fully vetted by the Chicago Bar Association. They've undergone an extensive training process to ensure that they provide the highest quality service and can guide you to an amicable resolution of your dispute. Call 312-554-2040 or email mediation at chicagobar.org to get started with the Chicago Bar Association mediation service today. And we're back. Corey, how did you first become aware of this case? How did you get involved?
1: In late 2015, I got a phone call from a woman in Michigan. I was sitting in my office in New York, and I've been handling lead poisoning cases for a long time, typically involving public housing cases and paint, not water. She probably did a Google search and found me somehow. She called me. She told me the story that I genuinely thought was batshit crazy, you know, Water, poison, kids, Michigan. She was in a homeless shelter. I wasn't even licensed to practice law in Michigan. I think I had spent maybe 20 minutes of my life in Michigan at some point in time. I told her that I probably couldn't help her. I wasn't licensed, but I would try and help her find someone who could. Hung up with her for the next few days. I, I was just researching and kept finding these chat rooms and blogs about this thing that was happening in Michigan. I became really intrigued by it. My wife and secretary had started learning about it too, probably because of their proximity to me. And they were like, you need to get involved in this. Called the woman back and begged her to let me represent her. And she laughed at me in light of the fact that I told her I wasn't licensed to. Yeah, Hired me, Rachel Maddow was hosting a town hall in flint that was invitation only i was not invited uh i got on an airplane it still and sound a little bitter so I, about that no no i wouldn't who the heck would invite me i mean i wouldn't have invited me uh but you know i i didn't get invited but i flew there on my own i was dressed in a suit tried to get in couldn't get in went back to my car put on it was cold i put on like a hoodie and jeans I have some tattoos and I rolled up my sleeves and I put on a backwards baseball cap and the same woman at the desk who would not let me in without a ticket, like welcomed me right in. I heard these community leaders telling parents in this auditorium of probably over a thousand people that their kids would be fine if they just ate more leafy greens and we got more school nurses and there was no need to get the kids tested and everything was going to be okay. And it was against everything that I had known about lead poisoning over the course of my career, my life, how I would treat my own kids. I came back to my office in New York, ironically, on the same flight as Rachel Maddow, and um, convinced my partners that if, you know, if we don't go there and do this, then, you know, we're kind of frauds. Because this, I think, is going to be the biggest lead poisoning story and scandal in our country's life as far as I knew. And if we were lead poisoning lawyers who were actually good at what we did, how do we not go there? Started going every week from like Mondays to Thursdays or Fridays. I would talk at churches. I would meet with people at an office that we rented. I would talk at schools. Literally any parent that would talk to me about this, I felt like I had to tell them that what they heard at that town hall just wasn't accurate. I started out with those few clients, the the children of the woman that called that grew to like twenty-five, and then it grew to like a hundred. And then before I knew it, we represented a thousand, and then it became twenty five hundred, and today we we represent about five thousand people. But it wasn't because of this mass advertising that a lot of, you know, law firms like mine sometimes do. It was just mm-hmm. boots on the ground, really pissed off. I can't believe this is happening, and I can't believe that they're still lying to these people two years after this thing had actually happened and we know the water's bad. And uh, I just kind of never left.
0: So you said it seemed too crazy to be true. What did you mean by that?
1: Because it, it, it was amazing to me that she was referencing something that happened in 2014 and that her kids were potentially still being poisoned in late 2015. I could understand how there could be lead in water. I could understand how there could be lead in paint. But if the New York City Department of Public Health knows that there's an apartment in the Bronx that has high levels of paint, lead and paint, I would expect that within days, the New York City Department of Public Health is going to be out at that apartment to remediate the paint because everyone knows that it's dangerous for kids. Right. It was very hard for me to believe that there were kids in Michigan a year and a half or two years after a switch had apparently been made who were still being fed, bathed with and drinking bad water laced with lead.
0: And you touched on this before, but Flint's primarily a a black community, correct?
1: So I, you know, earlier I talked about the socioeconomic composition of Flint, which is very poor. I think Flint's somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of black community. Often those things go hand in hand. Um, But, you know, there's been a lot of reports in the media and a lot of community folks who feel like this is... A product of institutional racism, and and I agree it is. You know, I I, I think it mm-hmm. is institutional racism, but I also feel strongly that to discredit how many white people have been affected by this crisis as well uh, right. is a little disingenuous, and it's because socioeconomically they're in the
0: same position as their black neighbors. So you sign up thousands of clients. Eventually, how did the case progress?
1: We initially filed individual cases for children on a case by case by case basis in state court against the private engineering companies i really believed initially the you know a theory of the case where you know there's people that were hired to do this there's people that were hired to consult on this there's people way smarter than some of the folks in government to make this switch to physically make this switch happen and how could right. they not have failed if this is what happened We ultimately filed cases for about 1,200 children in state court on an individual case-by-case basis. Every single kid had his or her own complaint, unless they were siblings, and then they were on the same complaint. When things started kicking up in federal court, even though I wasn't always fond of the theories that were being put on, on the liability of the government, they were constitutionally based, and some of them were novel and relatively imaginative, I was convinced by some lawyers in Michigan that it was probably plausible theories of liability there. And so we ended up filing cases again in federal court, more group pleadings. Maybe we filed 50 of them for all of our children, all all of our clients. But then we we went to federal court and, and did that. So we had cases pending in state court, cases pending in federal court. State court judge appointed leadership in the case, which was something I was wholly unfamiliar with. I had never applied to be lead counsel of anything on any committees. I know there's this mass tort world out there, but I had never lived in it or visited it or taken a flight to it. And for some reason, either because he got extremely intoxicated at a local Flint bar or because there was nobody better, the state court judge appointed me as lead counsel. I'm sure it didn't hurt that I had 500 cases on file for, you know, for a thousand kids as well. But I I got along famously with him as well as with the defense lawyers that he had appointed, just very cordial and courteous and respectful. And then the federal judge got to a point where she was appointing leadership and she probably either was drinking with the state court judge or felt like she had no choice because he had already appointed me and she put me in a similar position as liaison counsel in federal court for individual plaintiffs. So I kind of feel like I fell into two leadership positions that I really wasn't aiming for or even considering those Mondays and Wednesdays and Thursdays in Flint when I was talking at the Timothy Avenue Baptist Church to people about lead. I I didn't know that that's how this case would progress. I thought I'd have like a thousand cases on file and I would try them one by one and do discovery and fact sheets and you know, who knows what was going to happen. And then it turned into more of a mass tort litigation in a more traditional sense than what I was accustomed to, but what many folks who probably
0: listen to your show are more familiar with. I mean, But you had to be thinking class action from day one with this level of exposure, right?
1: I mean, I was opposed to class action from day one. Why? Well, I, I feel like kids are, I mean, I've always considered class actions to be a viable tool for litigating cases where You know, you and me, we both buy a toaster oven on Amazon for 50 bucks and 10,000 other people buy the same toaster oven for the exact same price. And it's all delivered at the exact same time. And when all of our toaster ovens arrive at our doorstep in our Amazon box and we go to use it, all of them are broken because of the same defect in the toaster oven. Mm -hmm. But in reality, kids aren't toaster ovens. And, you know, I have two sons. One is 12, one is 13. And, you know, if they were both lead-poisoned, based on the same quantity of lead at the same consumption rate over the same period of time at their lives, they would be affected very differently because they're just different kids. And academically, intelligently, their ability to read, to learn, you know, just who they are as kids are different. And so to treat them uniformly felt very wrong to me. It felt like it was commoditizing children in a way that I thought was really for toaster ovens. And I I kept thinking about times where I had siblings in cases in in Brooklyn or the Bronx or wherever, and I would never have brought a class action on behalf of all the child residents of a particular building simply because they were all lead poisoned in the same place, because all of them would be drastically affected in very different ways. So I, I don't discourage class actions or think anything negative about the lawyers who have tried to proceed in this case on a class action basis. But when it came to the children, I didn't think it was fair to put them in a group that would ultimately be treated very similarly, if not exactly the same, when all was said and done.
0: Okay, fair enough. So you thought there would be problems with the damages model, but you did, you did eventually settle it, right? There's a preliminary approval recently by the federal court for, is it 641 or $671 million?
1: Uh, as of now, it's six forty-one. But if you know anybody that
0: wants to put in thirty million
1: you want more, that extra there's 30? a bunch of people that would be happy about it. Yeah.
0: Okay, so here's why I asked that question because of what you just said about people being happy or not happy about it, and also you mm-hmm. know being difficult to determine on an individual basis the damages all these kids have suffered as a result of this. There is some opposition out there to the settlement, right?
1: Yeah, there is. And listen, the settlement isn't perfect. You know, it's a product of. 40 lawyers over three years and two mediators and a special master, you know, sitting in rooms and pounding on each other to try and get various ingredients into the chili pot that everybody thinks would make it taste better. Some people like some of the ingredients, some people like all the ingredients, some people like none of the ingredients, but it's a product of of collaboration and not, you know, the imagination of one person. 80% of the money is for kids or people who were kids during the crisis, and none of them are being treated as part of a class action. So, you know, at least 80% of the settlement is earmarked for non-class claimants, non-class plaintiffs. And then in addition, any individual who at any point has hired her own counsel to represent her individually, that person is not treated as part of a class action. So the class component to the partial settlement is really those unrepresented adults who ultimately make claims. It's a very small fraction, and my guess is it'll be less than 10 percent of the whole settlement. But to the extent that people are unhappy with the settlement, I don't begrudge anybody for the way they feel about the settlement. I I if it was my kid, I don't think there's enough money that anybody could ever pay me to make me feel like, oh, well, that made me whole or made my child whole. You can't make a child whole when you take something away from them that you can never give them back. It's just not possible. So, you know, people have their own feelings about it. Some people feel that there should be money paid for decades of being treated the way Flint was treated during the Flint water crisis. And it's hard to explain sometimes to a community that you're only being compensated for a short period of time and space, and you have to be able to, if you don't settle the case, ultimately prove how you were injured and that you were injured. And it's very difficult, if not impossible, in many cases or, or claimants' situations to show that X was caused by the water crisis or that Y was caused by the water crisis. And when I look at this settlement and I think about the difficulties in proving damages and causation, again, as a lawyer thinking, not as a concerned citizen in the middle of Flint who's chugging bottles of water back and forth from churches to my house and what that meant to me in the middle of the winter in the snow and trying to cook with bottled water and bathe with bottled water and feed formula to my child made with bottled water, those things are, are, there is no amount of money that's ever going to make anybody feel happy that they did that. But ultimately proving damages to a jury and surviving motions for summary judgment against state entities who are being accused of constitutional violations that have never really been brought successfully before against governmental entities. You know, there's there's a legal standard and then there's like a life standard. I think people are disappointed by what they're getting because of the life standard. But if they really understood the legal standard, they'd probably feel a little bit better about that
0: so there, there is more than just civil fallout from this case, right? A number of criminal charges were brought. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So again, you know, I know enough about it to talk somewhat intelligently about it, but obviously I'm not in the middle of the investigation, although the investigations are sort of parallel to each other, the, the civil investigation and the criminal. The criminal investigation was began almost at the same time that I was in Flint, beginning to handle these cases. And it was a Republican attorney general for the state who appointed someone who was considered a Republican appointee to lead this special prosecution. His name was Todd Flood. He did some incredible things in Michigan. Getting a case bound over to uh, the circuit court is like getting a grand jury indictment of sorts, but it's a judge that's signing off kind of on probable cause to bring a case. And he was able to, at some point, get involuntary manslaughter case against a government official bound right. over, meaning that he convinced the judge there was enough evidence to support that type of charge. And then, you know, politics happen in life and a uh, new governor is elected, Gretchen Whitmer, and a new attorney general was elected, Dana Nessel, both Democrats. I, if I was able to vote in Michigan, I likely would have voted for both of them. But for whatever reason, and they have their reasons, I guess, that were stated where they thought the original investigation was sloppy and things were missed. They essentially dismissed all charges to begin a new investigation and only recently have begun sort of recharging folks with crimes. And to their credit, they've brought some serious charges against some individuals and they've brought some less serious charges against others. The most notorious of them were misdemeanor charges against former Governor Snyder and What are the Um,
0: what are the nature of those charges, Corey?
1: um, You know, concealing information, dereliction of his governmental duties, things that would likely prevent him from ever being elected to public office again. But he was probably already never going to get elected to public office again. Although, you know, we've seen some comeback stories in our country that are hard to believe and some first time stories that are hard to believe. But. They don't carry with them much more than would ultimately amount to a fine, probably. Uh, but they're ceremonial. You know, I, I think in one respect, people from Flint are probably satisfied that he's being charged with the crime. But there's plenty of people in Flint that feel like this is ridiculous. If you have enough evidence to say that he was criminally culpable for something that happened to me and my kids, how do you only charge him with a misdemeanor? And again, it's, you know, people are dissatisfied with the amount of money in the settlement because on some level, they don't understand how hard it is to prove an amount of money at trial, people can be critical of the criminal prosecution involved in the water crisis and what the end result is. But most of the people who are critical, like me, probably don't understand how the sausage is made and, and yeah. what needs to be proven for these charges. And I, I think ultimately, most people are doing the best they can for the people, although it doesn't always feel like that for them.
0: So let's bring it back to the people. It's my understanding that somewhere between six and 12,000 children were exposed to lead. I know this is kind of a broad question, but how are they doing now?
1: Well, first off, I think it's probably more like, I mean, it may be 100,000 people that were exposed. Um, It was probably somewhere in the nature of 15 to 20,000 children. Okay. Uh, You know, I, I think on a very amorphous kind of level, I think people just have serious trust issues in the community of anybody that is in power, and they rightfully should. You know, this should have never happened you know, Understandable. And so right. So anytime anything is said or is put out publicly about positive stuff that's you know, the pipes are no longer bad, the water's good, it's okay to drink, there's layers upon layers upon layers of skepticism because of who's messaging and what the message is in light of what the message was and who was messaging that. In terms of physical health, the children who were lead poisoned, there's no You know, there's no fix. There's not like, you know, my kid just came home from sleepaway camp and had a skin infection and he's taking an antibiotic and he's getting better. Like there's a Mm -hmm. medicine he can take and I don't love that he has to take an antibiotic, but he's ultimately going to be okay and his skin's going to clear up and he'll probably go back next summer and do the whole thing again. You can't take an antibiotic for lead poisoning. You can't fix a kid's brain that's been permanently damaged. So the effects of what's happened to these children will take years, if not decades, to truly understand in that community. It's an entire community of children that had the potential for one thing, each of them, for their own one thing, and their potential will likely and necessarily end up not being met because of the way their brain will now function because they were poisoned. So what does that mean for them personally, individually? What does that mean socioeconomically for them in the future? I've, I've tried a number of lead poisoning cases where I felt like a jury was saying, well, this is just a poor black kid from Newark. What was he going to be anyway? And I do not subscribe to that. I do not subscribe to the fact that you're a product of your environment and you'll never make anything. And so to say, well, these kids weren't going to be anything anyway is a complete disservice to them and to children everywhere, because we all want to be judged on our own merits and climb out of our own holes and make our own futures for ourselves. Their futures will never fully be realized because they were poisoned. Mm -hmm. Number two, infrastructure wise and from an economic standpoint, it's very difficult to imagine significant investments into a community where people within the community still don't trust their water. So if mm. I'm going to start a Jersey Mike's or if I'm going to start a crepe shop or I'm going to start anything in an industry that requires water, why would I choose a city like Flint unless just economically it's so incentivized for me to to start a business there, so inexpensive for me too, that it just makes good sense? It's not going to be high on people's lists to go invest in Flint because There's still this distrust. Nobody knows or feels like they know if the water's any good. So, economically, the community, which was already in a bad place, they had emergency managers forever. They've been ravaged, and it doesn't really look like there's a way to reinvest or to fix that. Flint has a very high retention rate to the extent there's such a thing in cities, meaning people very rarely leave. So, you now have a community that is unlikely to have significant. That's
0: probably because they can't, right? In many ways, they can't. And
1: they're also very proud. Like, they love, you know, people are Flint strong. Those shirts and themes existed before the water crisis ever came. But, you know, people love the city of Flint. They love being Mm -hmm. from Flint. They're proud of it. But when you have a community of people that rarely leave and an economy that's going to suffer for decades because of what happened and the children in the community who don't leave, who ultimately will be the workers in the community, but their likelihood of being successful academically, which leads to economic opportunities is diminished because of lead, you have to invest some amount of money in this community. And so when people who are discouraging folks from participating in the settlement are coming out against settlement, as much as I respect what they think. I have no, again, I take no issue with people who feel that way to somehow argue to me that an investment of some portion of 640 million dollars is in that community by way of the children who are going to get it in their pockets and have it invested in annuities, or in the adults are, who are going to get it. I don't know another way in which that kind of money is put in the hands of people who will never leave the community to ultimately invest back in their own community. And again, sure. this is a partial settlement. I mean, people talk about it like, this is it. It's over. The lawyers are leaving. I mean, I filed lawsuits against three financial institutions after the settlement was reached for the bonding that occurred. That's a whole nother podcast. But for the bonding that occurred that led to the switch being possible, I've got cases pending against the Environmental Protection Agency, which is not a part of this settlement. The first four bellwether trials in this case are going to take place in late January or early February 2022. They're my cases. You know, th- these are four children that I represent and they're against those private entities that I originally filed against in Genesee County because I thought the best theory of the case was against them. So, mm-hmm. there's the wrong impression I think of of this being the end because it's not, and I think there's a little bit of a mischaracterization about the significance of $640 million or some portion thereof being invested
0: back into the community. What do you hope to achieve with those other cases? I, I I'd like you said um I've read up on them a little bit, and I know that would be a great subject for a full other podcast, but just really quickly, like, what are you looking for there?
1: I feel like there was like a bear in the woods and like a 100,000 people shot rifles at the bear and the bear died and or the bear was significantly injured. And I think the easy narrative is that the government was at fault because the government's usually at fault when we're dealing with government functions. But the reality is is a lot of people had guns and a lot of people pulled the trigger. And I just think there needs to be accountability amongst everyone involved and that you can't hide behind the government as a protection for your own misconduct. And, you know, I I look at every single person or every single entity that was involved in this crisis and, and potentially causing this crisis, and each one of them, like, I could say to my kids, this entity had one job and they failed. This Mm -hmm. entity had one job and they failed. The banks, all they had to do was due diligence or enough diligence to understand, which they probably did, that the Flint River was not a viable water source in the condition it was in and in the timeframe that it was about to be used. So we shouldn't make bonds to support action that we know is going to hurt people. But there was a significant financial upside to making the bonds on the front end that they were going to reap on the back end. And they did their own business analysis and decided, well, the money's too good, so we're, we're going to do it anyway. Hopefully, people won't get that hurt. The engineering firms that came in to do the initial work or to do the follow-up work, you know, they had a financial incentive to do the work in a certain way so that more business would come their way if they did the initial work a certain way and they had one job like do it right you know be honest don't be careless don't be misleading and so you know to answer the question in short which is hard for any lawyer to do especially me about something that i've worked on for so many years there just needs to be accountability and and i think that because there will never be enough money there will never be enough money for any one of these kids I want all of these people to pay more than the people before them. So some people look at parcel settlements and then, well, whatever we get from the next group, that's just gravy because we already got 640. To me, 640 should be the gravy. You know, we've yet, we've yet, I'm a vegan, but I'll say, you know, we've yet to get to the stake. Like to me, the, the private entities that did this as evidenced by the fact that they were the first group of people I filed against, I think they're the most culpable, not because it's convenient for me to go to trial and say that now that we've settled with the government, But because if I hire a plumber to come to my house to do some plumbing and then somebody gets hurt at my house because the plumbing wasn't done right, yeah, it's my house and maybe it's my job, but I hired a freaking plumber to come do the plumbing, why is the plumber not at fault when the plumbing fails? And these private engineering companies, in the most basic terms, were tasked with doing a switch that was going to be safe and evaluating the switch after the fact to determine if it was safe. If you can't rely on the professionals to tell you it was safe, it is safe, and it was always safe, then who are you supposed to rely on? So accountability and a heck of a lot more money for the people who are mad and the ones that are happy about the amount that they're going to get from the cell.
0: So you, you touched there a little bit on the role that government played in all this and the role that government can play, which I think is a nice segue to the article that you recently wrote in The Guardian, which uh, I read as as a call to action. What was your message there?
1: You know, I think as as lawyers like i'm i'm always like reacting to something bad that happened you know it's people hire a lawyer because something bad has happened and they want to be compensated for the bad thing and it feels to me the older i get and the more aware i become of government functionality either because of the type of cases that i participate in or just because of taxes or you know whatever like i become more aware of what the government's function is And I feel like the fault in all of it is that everything is reactionary and not proactive. And so I start looking at the water crisis, which has been my life for, you know, half a decade. And I don't ask myself, like, how do I get involved in the next one so that I can help compensate people for for their being hurt by something similar? But like, if I could have gone back in time and know then what I know now, how could I have made a significant difference or impact? And I really do think that many of these environmental problems come from infrastructure. Everybody in government knows that there are lead pipes throughout the United States that are ticking time bombs for communities like what happened in Flint can happen to them. Mm -hmm. But there's not this or there hasn't been a significant enough push of, well, what do we do about that before it happens? because we typically just do things about stuff after it happens. That's our business. That's being lawyers. You know, nobody hires a lawyer to say, hey, I would like to hire you to prevent Flint from happening again. As Flint happens, so how can you get me some money? And so when I wrote that article, I genuinely was just thinking, if I were Joe Biden and and I'm, you know, a relatively moderate but progressive individual who believes in climate change and science, you know, what can I do to make sure that Flint never happens? Because that's my little world, the Flint world. And- How do I do it in a way that benefits the communities that I'm trying to help beyond just making sure something bad doesn't happen? And I just feel like hiring and training people within communities and paying them to do the labor required to prevent this from happening is like a win-win-win for everyone. I've met the people in Flint. I know what it takes to change pipes and, you know, to rip out pipes and to put new pipes in and and how to apply the proper corrosion control, utilizing various electronic systems that measure those types of things. There is no one I've met as an adult and some children in Flint who could not be trained in a significant way to know how to do those things. And if they could be paid to do them while simultaneously Fixing a problem before it actually hurts anybody, it just makes good sense to me. Now, I've never been elected to public office. There's politics involved in everything. You know, we we can't even get an agreement on, on, you know, whether someone should have to wear a mask on an airplane or not or, you know. We fight over everything. There's literally, I could tell somebody who's from a different political party of me that the sky is blue and they would argue with me that it's that it's red, some in my own family, you know? <laughs> but we've got to realize that Republican kids and Democratic kids and black kids and white kids and Asian kids and Indian kids, any of them that drink lead-tainted water are gonna get brain damage from lead poisoning. It doesn't matter what color they are or what their parents' politics are, whether they believe in science or not, they're gonna get lead poisoning. And if we could just think about kids as like the first the first question we ask ourselves is, you know, what's best for the kids involved in this equation? Irrespective of politics, irrespective of red or blue, irrespective of geographically, what is the best answer if we were only looking at it for the kids? I think if everyone asked that question on the front end, they would ultimately come to a, a more appropriate resolution to whatever the problem is. And I guess the point of that article was to try and bring some of this to the surface from the perspective of someone who has seen the problem on the back end wishing every single day that I could have done more about it on the front end. And that's counterintuitive for what we do for a living. I mean, I only get paid when I win cases and I only get cases when someone's been hurt and people are only hurt when really bad stuff happens. But I'd rather be a shepherd somewhere in Italy or a waiter and know that all the people in the communities that I've spent time and where my kids are living and ultimately where my grandkids will live, they're all safe when they drink water. Like I'd feel better about myself knowing that that has happened and I'm just waiting tables somewhere in Milan, than I am about having to go into communities on an annual basis and file lawsuits against folks who never wanted to hurt kids. It's not like Governor Snyder was like, let's see how many children we can lead poison today. I cannot wait to lead poison all the children in Flint. Nobody would say that. Nobody who's rational or sane would ever say that. And I think we just need to acknowledge that we have problems and find ways to fix them that don't involve lawyers all the time, that don't involve reaction, but is rather proactive.
0: That's a good place for us to take a break. We'll be right back with Stranger and Legal Fiction. This episode of at the bar is brought to you by courtfiling.net your solution for filing in over a hundred courts in the state of Illinois courtfiling.net provides a better e-filing experience focusing on speed and ease of use in the e-filing process courtfiling.net is affordable and offers 24 7 phone email and chat support Visit us at courtfiling.net to receive 30 days unlimited free electronic filings and see why it's the best solution for your firm. Let courtfiling.net worry about your e-filing so you can get back to taking care of your clients. And we're back with Stranger and Legal Fiction. So, Corey, our audience knows the rules. They're pretty simple. I have researched strange laws somewhere in the United States, found one that is real but probably shouldn't be because it is so strange, it's weird, it's wrong, and then I've made another one up, and I'm going to quiz you to see if you can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. Are you ready to play? Sure. All right, so I chose one from Michigan, appropriately enough, and one from New York where you're based. Option number one, in Detroit, it is illegal to allow a pig to run free unless it has a ring in its nose. So that's option number one. Option two, in New York, it's illegal to put on a puppet show from a window of any private residence.
1: And I'm supposed to say which one is true and which one's false?
0: Right. You practice in New York, you practice in Michigan now, so I know there's a lot of pressure on you to get this right.
1: But there's definitely one that's true and definitely one that's false, right? Correct. Yeah, the puppet show is true and the pig is false. Why do you say that? I mean, am I right?
0: Why do you say that? I, want to, I, would, well, I think, Our audience wants to understand <laughs> yeah. your thinking process.
1: So my, my my thinking is the puppet show thing in a private residence in New York could potentially cause accidents on the road since most residences, if we're talking about the city, are you know in the middle of places where there's cars that are going back and forth. And if someone were distracted by a puppet show, it could cause significant harm on the
0: roadways. <laughs> um, Definitely thinking I, like I, a plaintiff's lawyer.
1: Yeah, I've been to enough I've been to enough places in Michigan outside of Flint where I would not be shocked to see a pig running around with a ring in its nose. And so it just makes more sense to me that that you know, I, listen, there's parts of Michigan that you would think you were in rural Mississippi and I think you want to make sure that like there's something about the pig that's trained or they're not going to destroy things, but pigs are super smart, like the smartest animal, one of the smartest animals there is. I guess the only issue with that one is I'm not sure a pig would let you put a ring in its nose because it's so smart, but it's better than turning a pig into bacon, again, as a vegan. I'm just going with the puppet show. I I feel like public (laughs) health-wise, puppet shows are bad on the streets of New York City.
0: Well, that was a long journey, but it got you to the right destination. You're exactly right. Section 10-114 of the New York City Code makes it illegal to put on a puppet show from a window of any private residence. I'm sure the members of Sesame Street and the Muppets will be pretty upset to hear that they're all criminals there.
1: I've survived my whole life on guts and instinct, and that just, you know, boom. They
0: served you well here, once again, once again. I should add that the Michigan law, that comes up in a lot of lists of weird laws. I even saw it being cited on legal blogs and law firms' websites as weird Michigan laws, but I could not find it anywhere in the Detroit City Code. It didn't come up in any Westlaw searches, I think that is just a legal myth, but if anyone in our audience can prove me wrong, I, I welcome them to do so. That is going to be our show for today. Corey, thank you again for joining us. This has been a fascinating, if disturbing, and upsetting conversation. Please keep up the great work on behalf of the people of Flint and, well, I suppose everyone, really. Honored to be with you. Thank you. I also want to thank our executive producer, Jen Byrne of the CBA, as well as Adam Lockwood on sound, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you download the podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar.